Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. This is episode three of our summer 2020 series of bonus episodes in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. If you are new to this series, the format for these episodes features selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event, and in the outro, Dylan and I discuss which action items you all can take, ways to continue the conversation, many resources, and our commentary. Please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event on YouTube. This conversation today explores the topics of big tech, power, and diplomacy through expert insight from the invited guest speakers, Alexis Wachowski and Rana Sarkar. Alexis Wachowski is an adjunct associate professor in Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, teaching in the technology, media, and communication specialization. She is also deputy chief technology officer for innovation for the city of New York, and author of the book, The Information Trade, How Big Tech Conquers Countries, Challenges Our Rights, and Transforms Our World. Rana Sarkar is the Consul General of Canada for San Francisco and Silicon Valley, with accreditation for Northern California and Hawaii. He is also a member of Canada's NAFTA Advisory Council and co-chairman of the advisory board at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. This conversation was moderated by All Tech is Humans, David Ryan Polgar. The organizational partner for the event was The Bridge. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Tech is Human. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what All Tech is Human, welcome. Uh, we try to onboard people into the responsible tech space. And speaking of responsible tech, that's why today's conversation is all about big tech, power, and diplomacy. Uh, and for this conversation, we'd like to thank our partner, The Bridge. Check them out at thebridgework.com. They're all about breaking down silos between technology, policy, and politics. Really excited about the guests that we have for today. Uh, we have Alexis and Rana. Uh, who I'm going to be introducing, and then we're going to learn a little bit more. Uh, but I'm sure you'll be fascinated with their extensive backgrounds into this issue. Uh, first, we have with Alexis Wachowski. Uh, she is the Deputy Chief Technology Officer for Innovation for the City of New York, and also the author of a very timely book, which has the title, The Information Trade, How Big Tech Conquers Countries, Challenges Our Rights, and Transforms Our World. So Alexis, welcome. Oh, there we go. And we got the uh, the book plug. Thank by you Rana. so much. I like that. So I'll also introduce uh, Rana Sakar. He is the uh, Consul General of Canada in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and also we should throw in uh, Hawaii as well. So Rana, welcome to uh, to our All Tech is Human live stream. Great to be here. So this 
topic couldn't become any more hot and contentious, maybe, and and topical. Uh, Alexis, I'll, I'll start off with with you. Love to learn a little bit more about your your role right now uh, with the city of New York, and also with the the book, the information trade, and then how it dovetails with this issue. Because really, what we're talking about is how. Um, in many ways, big tech uh, companies are are kind of acting uh, like countries. They have uh, an immense amount of, of power and uh, capital and oftentimes borderless. And this seems to be leading to a lot of friction. So, Alexis, uh, do tell us a little bit more about uh, what you're working on and, and how it dovetails with this topic. Absolutely. So, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm working with the city of New York as a deputy CTO in innovation. Um, one of the big projects that our office has been working on since the pandemic hit is actually just closing the digital divide. We're trying to yeah. make sure there's enough infrastructure in place so that we can get the last million New Yorkers who are not connected at home online wow. for work, for school, for everything that they need to do. And this is one of the things that I think was really relevant with um, when I was researching the book, uh, talk about this idea of the big tech companies acting like governments in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. acting like nation states. Um, and the fact that they have accumulated so much power and capital and have a user base that are uh, in some ways they treat like their citizens, they offer them certain rights and privileges, mm -hmm. or there's, um, you know, other kinds of rules and, and principles in place that are different than national uh, regulations about citizens. Um, one of the things though, that I thought was really interesting about these particular group of tech companies, which I call net states, because um, they're really different than traditional tech companies in a lot of ways, is that they're also getting interested in things like infrastructure, like, mm. like closing the digital divide, laying submarine cable down in the ocean. Uh, Facebook, during the height of the COVID pandemic in New York City, uh, spent something like $6 billion to buy a cable to connect about 28 countries in Africa. So we're seeing these tech companies moving outside of their core digital services and products and into areas that used to be really government stuff, you know, mm -hmm. things like electricity and power grids and, um, and telecommunications were not something that um, you're, you're, you know, you think of like Instagram thinking about, but the people who own Instagram, Facebook are doing just that. Yeah. And even when we think about the founding of uh, development of the of the Internet, uh, well, we know Al Gore's involvement. Right. Uh, but but we also know that the U.S. government uh, and also through the military, uh, you know, spent a considerable amount of money uh, to to kind of uh, extend the development of the Internet. Whereas now, uh, as you're talking about, it seems like a lot of the uh, research and development is, is being done more on the uh, commercial side. So, Ron, I want to bring you in uh, to this conversation. Tell us a little bit more about your your role uh, representing Canada, because that certainly seems like a unique one. Uh, some people might be familiar with the the role that got a lot of media attention uh, last year with Denmark with their tech uh, tech diplomacy, their uh, their their ambassador uh, that that was also in in Silicon Valley. So, love to hear a little bit more about about your role, some of the opportunities and challenges that you're seeing. Sure. Uh, thank, thanks so much. And, um, you know, you mentioned Casper uh, Finge, who's the, mm -hmm. the Danish, uh, the, who's, who's since left uh, uh, the job very recently, but uh, was the Danish uh, tech ambassador and uh, based here in Silicon Valley. And, um, and that, you know, of course, uh, catalyzed, I think, a lot of uh, the, uh, the conversation about, you know, what forms of representation are appropriate for uh, tech, just as, you know, Alexis was, 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 was speaking, just as, 
in the context of these large tech platforms that have um, completely dwarfed many aspects of the traditional economy. And it's happening in a context of uh, a real, not just geopolitical shift and geoeconomic shift towards uh, a very different type of economy, uh, economy that, you know, where um, uh, information is, is uh, not just, you know, an aspect of the economy, but is actually the main uh, sort of trading variable in mm -hmm. what's taking place right now. And so there's a, um, so all of this is going on in the, the context of a, an enormous geoeconomic shift right now um, to this intangible economy. And so I think states, uh, Canada included, I think that, you know, I was appointed here by the prime minister uh, to be based here in Silicon Valley to do a variety of things. And, um, and the question is, is that, you know, are you a ambassador to, uh, you know, a bunch of tech companies, which typically don't get, you know, a, uh, an ambassador level appointment or even, you know, a, a specific appointment towards them. And, or rather, are you somebody who is, uh, 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 you know, embodying a, a set of characteristics and building a sort of a team that is able to, uh, uh, to sense make, to develop uh, a whole set of uh, diplomatic relations, not just with uh, the companies themselves, but the ecosystem more broadly, the venture community, a lot of the NGOs that have uh, are doing ex extraordinary work right now with the, the, the universities and the think tank culture that is evolving around these issues. Because what we're really doing um, right now is that we're all developing a kind of co-literacy in terms mm -hmm. of what is actually taking place. Because part of the problem as Alexis was, 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 was speaking about was, and her book uh, very nicely goes into, is that um, you know, part, part of it is the mismatch between the mechanisms that we currently have in place that are about states as, or it's about dealing with com companies and, you know, internal company things that come from an industrial economy metaphor to this new structure. And so yeah. all of us are, are adjusting our sets and we're developing these new literacies. We're developing a whole new set of institutions. We're developing uh, partnerships and cooperation across borders while this is taking place. And so um, for me, you know, the job, you know, is, is you know, building the, uh, this kind of sense-making apparatus because a lot of the conversations that we're having is also internally within government. So it's not just mm -hmm. with the, the states, uh, you know, other, other uh, uh, companies or other states, it's, you know, building um, this cross-literacy within our government because any one of these, uh, these large platforms are going to be, connected to our government and many other governments in about you know nine ten twelve different places all of which have expertise to deal with them but we're not particularly well coordinated internally to talk to talk to them or nor do we really have the appropriate metaphor for what these things are because that's all evolving very fast and so i think that this is you know and there's been you know i can go into it a little bit further but you know there's uh there's at least been two or three different phases since I've been here in, in 2017, you know, um, of evolution that we've seen. Well, the, Alexis, this is where I love to bring you in, especially for your role uh, with the city of New York. Uh, what are you noticing on your end uh, to, to build on uh, Rana's point about this kind of cross-sector uh, experience or need really be, uh, with a, maybe a greater bridge uh, between the tech sector and uh, people who are uh, operating inside of uh, inside of government. What are you seeing on your end or, or what do you think needs to be be done? Well, I think that Canada has got it right. I think that the <laughs> fact that Rana's got this position is exactly what we need to be seeing more of. 
Um, it would be wonderful to see this happening um, in in every country um, because there's, as Rana had mentioned, there's just a new kind of relationship that we're building with the tech ecosystem that we don't really have good, as you mentioned, literacy for or language for. This is one of the reasons why I introduced this new term, uh, net states, in my book. Mm -hmm. um, and it goes back to actually looking at the way that tech platforms were fighting terrorism back in 2015, 2016, when ISIS was really at its peak. Um, we, we knew what nation states were, countries, mm -hmm. and we knew that the non-state actors like ISIS were like the bad guys, but the role of tech companies whose platforms were being used to organize and recruit, didn't, we didn't really have a good way to talk about them in this, in this kind of di um, dynamic. Yeah. So that's why I, I thought we, it was time to acknowledge their difference um, and their distinction from traditional companies um, with a new term like net states. Like, for instance, Facebook's counterterrorism team um, is larger than the counterterrorism team at the State Department. Wow. And it's not even that strange to think about Facebook having a counterterrorism team, knowing what we know about how the platform has been used. But if you think about other companies like Walmart or McDonald's, having a counterterrorism team, it would seem kind of absurd. Yeah. So it's, I, I think that um, Rana said it really wonderfully when you talked about needing a new kind of literacy to talk within government and between governments and the tech sector um, about the kind of dynamic that we need to strike. Well, this is where I'm curious, uh, since you bring up uh, Facebook, obviously a lot of issues that we can dig in there uh, with how they are extended uh, across the globe, right? Uh, now with with all their different Facebook family properties like uh, WhatsApp and Instagram now approaching uh, 3 billion people, uh, you know, extensive amount of, of individuals. When you think about Facebook, uh, we, we tend to know its origin story, right? Of being founded in a, a Harvard dorm room, uh, you know, very, very American company. Uh, however, now it's touching uh, all, all different corners of the world. Do we think that that Facebook and other companies similar to that should be primarily where they derive from? Or, or does it need to uh, be kind of a, a amalgam? Does, does it need to kind of morph uh, with all the different countries it's in? So, for example, uh, Facebook is currently having a, a kind of a diplomatic issue with Turkey. Uh, that is creating or just created a new law, basically saying that they would like to to have a Turkish office for for Facebook there, and that all the data needs to maintain uh, itself in in Turkey, and that it basically stamped the kind of social mores uh, and historical kind of aspects of of Turkey more so on uh, on Facebook. So so how do we deal with an issue like that? Because that seems to be a a struggle right now for social media uh, platforms is that. There are, most of them are, are based in America. So do you wonder, does that kind of imprint of how we balance free expression versus privacy, is that something that now is getting kind of um, extended throughout the world? Or, or is it their role to, to adjust to say, okay, here's how Canada is, is different than, than America. Uh, here's how Turkey is different than America. So Rana, what do you, what do you think about, about something like that? I, I, I think that, you know, to an extent, the uh, it, this has to do with the history of and the fast rise of uh, the, the organizations themselves where they're they only really started to to understand and you know maybe laterally start to take responsibility for some of the reactions of the, or the externalities of mm -hmm. the platform um you know uh, very late in the game you know as as they were uh, uh, already multi-billion 
uh, uh, user uh, platforms at that stage. And when we started to realize that the, you know, the, the negative externalities were just so profound. And what I think that they, where it, where it sort of uh, uh, is more similar to many other, uh, the, the, the usual politics of multilateral organizations is that, uh, uh, or multinational organizations is that, um, uh, you know, for the longest period, you know, in the post-war period, we've gone through a period where, um, you know, be playing geographic arbitrage uh, for multinational corporations was, you know, essentially a part of, you know, this globalization 2.0 that we were in. Um, I think that, you know, the, the context where the Facebooks will be uh, having to, to be much more nuanced and to use the, uh, the, the diplomatic and the, and, and the political leverage that they're adopting is that, you know, we are probably entering a world where um, we're starting to see the resurgence of sovereignty and uh, nation states are starting to, you know, relook at their the sovereignty arrangements that have been in place and recognize that there are uh, challenges in having uh, uh, players that are acting in their jurisdiction, which where they have no control over. And I think that uh, the, the, the large platforms are going to start to um, uh, inevitably start to pick some sides. And, uh, uh, and that is, you know, my projection, I mean, it's not, you know, our, 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 our government's projection necessarily, but it's, it's one that I see as, you know, something that we're seeing in the next three or four years. And so what does that mean in terms of picking sides? It means that, look, the, the, the First Amendment principles that, you know, uh, where we're having this kind of, you know, extended uh, uh, sort of conversation about in the United States um, around these platforms do not necessarily translate well. We have, we have very different uh, uh, formats of rights protection, even within Canada, uh, which is a, a very like neighbor, but certainly within the European Union. Um, but also if you extend it further into places like India and uh, mm -hmm. countries within Africa, for instance, and, and others, they have very different uh, uh, sets of tolerance levels. And so I think that uh, each of these companies are, are going to have to uh, deal with it on a, on a country by country basis, but they also have to recognize and, and we'll probably will spark, start to see is that uh, um, the, the nation state in which they're housed, they owe a lot more allegiance to that than they would probably otherwise uh, want to admit. Hmm. So Alexis, uh, what do you, what do you, would you imagine are the types of roles that these tech companies should be hiring for then if, if they're going to be thinking about these diplomatic issues? Uh, specifically, what Ron is talking about of of maybe more sovereignty uh, with some of these these nations. It seems like a, a lot of European countries right now are are pushing back uh, at a lot of the big tech companies, especially around their their data uh, use. Uh, I, I know there's been a, a few issues in Ireland uh, and and other places uh, around you know how uh, you know how the the information is uh, is stored there. So, what would you say from the 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 tech uh, perspective? What would you say is is needed uh, with, with some of these roles? Well, yeah, I think that, um, you know, in the beginning, a lot of these companies, they were just trying to get off. They were just trying to get off the mat and into the game. They just they had people who could code and design and they worried about we'll figure out the ethics stuff later. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think what we're seeing now is a realization that not only do the the big players need to have robust policy teams and not just people who understand things like how to interpret legislation, but actual diplomats and the recruiting people from the diplomatic community 
as we saw Microsoft do with Casper Kling, mm -hmm. um, who yep. brought him on board to be their ambassador to the EU. Um, that I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of thing happening, where they're in a, it, the, the burning need a few years ago was to address terrorism on their platform. So they'd created counterterrorism teams. And I think the next phase that we're going to see is creating diplomatic cores within their teams. Because in the same, as you described with the Turkey example, yeah. it's just like countries have different kinds of relationships with different other countries. Um, I think the tech companies are going to strike different kinds of balances and different kinds of arrangements with different countries in which they're operating and doing business. So okay. they'll have different treaties and those treaties will need to be negotiated and managed. Interesting. Yeah. And this is where I'd also like to mention for, for everybody tuning in. One, thank you for being here. But two, uh, this is where I'd love uh, for you to just start inserting your questions, comments, and then we'll uh, we'll have both of our special guests uh, you know, answer some of these, these questions as well with our time together. But uh, Rana, I want to uh, ask you to kind of build upon this, this conversation. Uh, a term that seems to be popping up uh, as of late is um, techplomacy. Uh, so I don't believe we have, uh, you know, established uh, exactly what we are thinking about, right? What, what, what's your personal definition of techplomacy and where do you see it uh, being important in the 21st century? Well, I, I think that tech diplomacy or techplomacy, whether you, you know, however you phrase it, I think it's been with us for, for, for some time in the sense that it is a, it's diplomatic activity that is focused on the technological domain. And so, where that has is is palpably different right now is just the you know the scale and importance and the amount of vectors that that encompasses right now. So previously it was things like you know ICANN and you know dealing with the telecommunications infrastructure, lots of plumbing related issues, but also cybersecurity and many different um, aspects. And so if you think about jobs like mine or you know jobs that you know had portions of what I was doing and what I'm what I'm up to here is that you know previously you know we've got about three different models of tech diplomacy that are really taking place one is the kind of purest form of tech diplomacy which was maybe the Casper's uh, model that uh, uh, that uh, the Denmark rolled out which was in Estonia and a few other countries that are trying to do these sorts of things which is essentially just uh, a, a diplomatic entity that is focused solely on um, uh, technology companies in the tech ecosystem. The second is a uh, uh, what I would call a cybersecurity plus sort of model, where mm -hmm. we saw a lot of uh, 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 organizations and, and 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 companies that you know and and countries that are of course needfully focused on cybersecurity, cyber protection, all of the kind of modalities and regimes that need to go into that because it's not you know this is not strict military security there's offense defense and often offense and defense being run at the same time um there's you know lots of intercomplexity but there's also uh, existing infrastructure that comes from the military it comes from you know various you know, our, our diplomatic structures are uh that that already exist out there and so you have that porting into that capacity porting into more of the commercial side as well and so that's kind of, you know, the cyber uh, security sort of uh, uh, heavy uh, tech diplomacy that we're seeing. And then what I would say is that, you know, the, the kind of role that I play here probably is like the hybrid model of, of, uh, of, of tech diplomacy, which is taking people with geographic responsibility. So I still have geographic responsibility. I'm consul general in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and Hawaii. And, so, and, and also I have commercial responsibility in the sense that, you know, I'm you know, working with the ecosystem, you know, helping 
uh, to sort of promote the Canadian ecosystem and what's taking place there. And so have all of these different types of relationships that are in addition to the um, looking at the offensive and defensive requirements that we need to address um, tech regulation and the tech companies themselves. And so, um, and when you're dealing with as fast moving as a complex an ecosystem as tech, you know, you know, our view at least, and you know, this is the, the the view thus far. We're all, you know, being you know somewhat experimental about doing this things, but this is you know uh, a, a point of advantage right now, just because you know so many different things are going on, and you know, as Alexis was mentioning, um, you know, obviously uh, AI, of course, mm -hmm. will become the 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 next uh, and already is in many ways. Um, the next platform that we're um, in the midst of uh, spending our time on. This is where I'd love to uh, bring up some questions uh, for, for you, Alexis and, and Rana. I see a few that just popped in here, one from Tara that we'll get to. Uh, what do we think about the role of private companies and multilateral processes to define cyber norms, build capacity, and assist with implementation? So Alexis, do you have any yeah. thoughts on that? Um, well, yeah, I've, I think that what this is, um, I referred to just a moment ago about the fact that Microsoft uh, hired away Kasper Kling, the former Danish tech ambassador, to be their ambassador to the EU. They also at the same time hired an ambassador to the United Nations. And I think that wow. it would make a lot of sense for uh, the other major tech companies to do similar kinds of things for two reasons. One, first of all, actually, they don't, they already had relationships with multilateral institutions. Um, for the UN, for instance, there's Global Compact, which is sort of how businesses generally interact with the United Nations. Mm -hmm. So they didn't really need to find uh, a, a road into the United Nations. Uh, they already had one. What they wanted was a diplomatic road into the United Nations, which was new. So I think that we're going to start seeing more and more of these kinds of roles, um, people trying to, uh, people in the tech sector, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, et cetera, creating diplomatic roles to engage with multilateral institutions um, to influence things like the, um, the, pa the Paris Accords um, that came out a few years ago uh, that originated from the Digital Geneva Convention, which was promoted by Microsoft. It was um, the, one of the first times we've seen the kind of quasi-diplomatic treaty uh, engaged, entered into um, by not countries, but companies. So I think we're gonna see more of these kinds of things. And Alexis, is there a clear separation between uh, diplomacy and lobbyists? Because we, we know a lot of the big tech companies have been hiring a lot of uh, lobbyists for a lot of these uh, these these rules that are cropping up. I think it's a I think it's an important distinction to make, actually, um, in that the reason that these tech companies are engaged in diplomatic efforts are different than the reason that they're hiring lobbyists. So they're hiring mm -hmm. lobbyists to influence legislation and regulation. Um, that will protect their business interests. The diplomacy arms of these kinds of firms are looking, I think, at broader principles. So for instance, uh, again, Microsoft entered into a treaty with, um, with I believe it was uh, Rome and or Vatican City on AI ethics. So oh, yes. these are the kinds with of- With IBM. Yep. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the diplomatic uh, relationships between tech companies, um, and nation states, I think they're more focused on ethical principles or broader principles, um, not so much on specific uh, strategies that will help benefit their companies. 
Okay. I also, I also think that just to jump in on this one, it's like, yeah. I think that, um, you know, we, we've had this in the past in the sense that we've always had standards bodies. We've always had a, a, a long conversation on issues that were actually percolating below the surface that people didn't really pay attention to. Mm -hmm. You know, internet standards, for instance, you know, or telco standards, those have always had um, commercial representation at what was a quasi public forum. And were they pure multinational forums where that were seated by, by national governments? Not always, but occasionally. And so there's always been a tension between um, these formats. Um, you know, the UN particularly, you know, is very protective of the sovereignty rights of the states themselves, right? And so even UN bodies that are at those tables, you know, don't, you know, they have to fight for 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 the same level of table access as the as the states themselves. And that's just built into the the code of the UN system. And but now um, we're we're in a moment where the tech companies actually have a you know they, they've got disproportionate power. Like in, mm -hmm. in many ways, um, you know, one of the distinctive elements is not just the size and scale of these companies, but clearly their uh, their their data power, their market making power, um, many of the uh, the standards making powers that they have, and which they are actually um, already doing, and uh, and this has been going on from for a long time. Now what's happening, I think, is that um, there is this dance between multilateral organizations that are taking place and uh, and nation states and also um, third party uh, entities, be they uh, the tech platforms themselves, which have an enormous amount of uh, both expertise, ammunition and standing naturally, but also um, third party organizations. So I think a lot of the the, the great thinking that's being that's taking place, for instance, that we see not just you know the the UN high level panel came out, the the OECD uh, sort of rulings came out. This is all building on um, many of the, uh, the sort of the build up post GDPR in Europe, but also um, we're seeing um, uh, uh, organizations that are are popping up that are not governments nor are they tech companies mm -hmm. that are having an enormous impact on the space. And I think this is where it gets exciting because I think that nation states themselves have to rethink, you know, who is at the table for these conversations. And, you know, we saw, you know, Canada out of the last G7, you know, we, we had the presidency and then gave to France was uh, GPAI uh, came out of that. And, um, and that, you know, may become one of those bodies that becomes, you know, a de facto standards or protocol setting body. Um, but who knows? I mean, I think that uh, Alexis's point around uh, the Digital Bill of Rights charters, uh, uh, where company or where tech companies have been focused right now, is I think that the first port of call for them. And I think that as they get drawn more deeply into the operational layer of of what we need to get done, um, that will you know eventually come as well. Well, that's the question I'd love to to bring up since you mentioned, uh, Rana, some of these groups that are cropping up. We we did have two questions. Here's one of them. Uh, are there actually any particular multi-stakeholder stakeholder groups or initiatives that you think are, are doing a, a good job in this space? So, uh, Alexis or, or Rana, are, are there any ones specifically that you would you would kind of point people towards that you think are are kind of the wave of where this is headed? I, or so, is it so new that you think it? Yeah, like I, I think, you know, there's, there's, it, we've almost got 
you know, a, um, a surfeit of, of bodies out there. Like we've got so many that are of competing interests, but there are some very good ones. I mean, I think that the UN high level panel, the work that's coming out of that mm -hmm. will be very interesting. Um, you know, things like GPAI will be uh, uh, very, uh, potentially very fruitful as well. Um, uh, and I also think that, you know, we haven't seen the, uh, the, the end of uh, uh, the creation of new bodies that are sort of out there that potentially have um, uh, implementation and uh, legislative or quasi-legislative teeth that have sanctions associated with them, because I think those will be the ones that uh, inevitably start to, uh, to, to, to gain some power. But what I'd say as well is that the thing that people should focus on in our communities are, I think where a lot of the good thinking is, is a lot of the centers of activity, like a lot of the think tank world, a lot of the uh, sort of non-governmental organizations that have been, you know, applying these boards for the better part of 30 years. And I think that those are um, a lot of good activity. And I, I think, you know, even in place, you know, in, in Canada right now, um, where, you know, we historically have played a role as, you know, a good actor and institution builder, you know, for the better part of 100 years, um, you know, we're building things like we've got, you know, the Citizens Lab at the University of Toronto at uh, the Monk School. Um, we've got the Max Bell Center that um, has, is just, you know, a phenomenal new institution that I think is going to uh, be very impactful. Um, uh, we have CG. Um, and then you have the Oxford Internet, Internet Institute, mm -hmm. and you've got all the work that's being done at NYU. Um, so much good stuff, Columbia, um, that are out there and Stanford out here. And so you've, I think that you're really getting to this kind of critical mass of non-state uh, actors who are actually becoming quasi-legislative or quasi um, uh, you know, sort of uh, decision-making entities as well. Um, or at least will uh, point to the direction of how we'll start to create some of those. I also like to mention, uh, since uh, our last live stream, we had uh, Sophia Noble, uh, who wrote um, uh, Algorithms of Oppression. Uh, her uh, organization, uh, alongside Sarah T. Roberts, they recently received $2.9 million from an uh, Australian uh, organization that is getting, uh, getting behind studying, uh, really, this intersection of big tech power and uh, diplomacy. Um, Alexis, for you, I'm, I'm seeing a few questions uh, bring up one uh, that we have here. Uh, what do we think that these shifts will impact or how do you think that these shifts will impact citizen views regarding the role and responsibility of governments? Right. So you, yeah. you mentioned earlier how, how Facebook and other big tech, tech companies are getting into areas that used to be the domain of, of government. So. Are we going to start looking to uh, to Facebook uh, as uh, as our government? Are we going to be looking at these tech companies with that type of type of role in mind? So I think that our relationship with government is currently undergoing a shift. And one of the things that we're seeing, particularly in the United States, the last few years, is a great loss of faith in, in institutions of government to um, to deliver it at the federal level. Um, so we're seeing cities uh, step up in ways that have not traditionally been the case. Um, and I mean, the pandemic response was, I think, a perfect example where cities and states were really kind of on their own to, for instance, procure PPE or other resources that they needed. Um, so I think that one of the things that citizens, th the relationship between citizens and their government in a perfect world is one in which citizens don't think about government very much. Like, 
I remember reading a piece about uh, this a while ago where uh, I can't remember the author who he described the relationship between um, citizens and their government is a boring one. And that's a good thing <laughs> uh, that we want the government to provide for the roads and the bridges and make sure that the schools are all well you know, resourced and that um, we're protected. But we don't want it to be a source of friction. It's supposed to be something that's kind of in the background. And now I don't think that people have confidence that government can provide those basic resources. Um, part of this is because of the pandemic, but I think part of this extends the years before that because of the leadership crisis that we're having right now. So I think that people are not necessarily wanting to look at tech companies as providing for their safety and security, but I think they want someone who's going to get it done. And if they have a better chance of getting it done, they will. So, Rana, this is where I love to bring you in because this was actually a, a very um, uh, hot issue recently uh, in Canada, in Toronto specifically, with uh, Sidewalk Labs, which is owned mm -hmm. by uh, Google, uh, which is, uh, I guess, building some some major uh, smart city. It's had a lot of twists and turns in the the story, but that was to Lexus's uh, point. Uh, that's something where now you have a tech company that is supplying a lot of these uh, basic kind of governmental needs. So do you have any um, insight or, or thoughts on um, tech companies and, and their involvement with uh, smart cities or maybe something specifically yeah, I mean, with, I, uh, but, with that? Yeah, I mean, I got to speak to, you know, the, the Sidewalk Labs example, you know, is just indicative. But what I would say is that, you know, I agree with Alexis's point that, you know, we're at a, at a moment where um, clearly the, you know, the, the power equation, the effectiveness equation, you know, for uh, for a, at least a, a period was that, you know, tech and tech companies um, were able to get things done at scale and were able to get things done at speed. A lot of the innovation that we were seeing in the world has uh, been largely run out of tech. And so therefore, um, in the context of, you know, an erosion in public confidence in other institutions, tech was seen as, as you know, some, at least a, a potential uh, poll to sort of rally around. But I think that what we've seen in the last three years, and in particularly in the last 18 months, has been a reckoning of that cycle as well, where um, the uh, tech companies themselves, obviously, they've got issues, they've got, they need to grow up and, you know, discover their own poles of sovereignty and responsibility and are in the midst of doing that, building those capacities to do that. But also, I think governments, the, the, the shift around what we want governments to do has changed slightly. And this is maybe a uh, slightly, I know I, I spend all my time in the United States and sheltering in place mm -hmm. and all of that. But um, if you look around globally, though, like the pandemic and the accelerant of the pandemic has been a great example of this in the sense that we have, um, we're, we're in a moment now where governments are actually doing really effective things in parts of the world. And, uh, and people are asking more of their government. They're seeing what happens mm -hmm. when you don't have an effective government. What, what happens when, you know, institutions that you thought were just, you know, existed because they existed you know, all of a sudden don't exist. And what are the costs of that? And so, and I think that there's a, we're, you know, maybe this is optimistic, but we are entering a moment where people are really thinking about that, so that relationship between the citizen and government a lot differently. And so Sidewalk Labs is a really interesting example of that in the sense that, you know, here's an example of a project and there's many reasons why that project hit the buffers in terms of, um, you know, public confidence in, in Toronto. But I think that, had it been any other place, and here's my, my view on, on Sadovas, anywhere else in the Western world, the similar set of issues that would have come up during that period, which is 
you know, originally you, 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 you provide a project which says, oh, we're going to have these wonderful smart cities. They're going to do all these great things, you know, about weight. We'll tell you, you know, what those are in, in a bit. Um, but, uh, you know, but no one really uh, was uh, taking, uh, not very seriously, but I mean, people weren't you know, thinking down the stack to what does it mean to be a citizen and where does the mm -hmm. sovereignty ultimately lie? Where is, who is this for? What is it for? What are the ultimate outcomes of that? And um, and that's because we weren't at that place when sidewalk. And this is no, you know, this is not to discredit sidewalk. I think that we just weren't at that place in the public conversation. But fast forward 18 months, all of a sudden the public is seized with these issues, and the companies and organizations that you know had plans for a prior era, they're just not as relevant. And so they would have to answer the questions about you know who is providing this service, who is it for. What you know? Who holds that data? What's you know? How how long is that data going to be held? You know what the what are the ultimate governance components to that data? And so one of the good outcomes, and I'll just you know say this about the sidewalk experience in in the city of Toronto is that um, is um, out of that came a concept around the data trust, which um, probably has you know if we unpack that and develop that in various components, probably some way forward in terms of the way we start thinking about data is not just naturally sort of either residing, you know, with the individual or with companies necessarily, mm -hmm. but maybe there could be these third intermediaries that, that, that acted in public interest or the aggregate interest. Um, uh, so those are new concepts that actually came out of a process. Well, Alexis, uh, then to, to be uh, highly topical, uh, since you're with the, the city of New York, uh, New York has done a, a great job recently uh, tamping down COVID. Um, obviously, there's always a lot of discussion around uh, issues like uh, data usage with contact tracing, something, something like that. So where do you see that role kind of expanding or potentially not with um, handling something like a pandemic? It, it relying on very sensitive data. Uh, that's something where there's an opportunity for uh, collaboration between tech companies and governments. Uh, but then also the issue of trust seems to, to be uh, very heightened uh, in that situation. No, I think that you really, um, that's the right uh, perspective to take is that trust is at the core of this. And what we've done in New York City with contact tracing has been um, very similar to how we provided services to citizens uh, across the board. We've managed people's private information in many services, uh, housing and um, for loans and paying taxes and things like that. Um, and the difference is with contact tracing, there's the opportunity to bring in these tech companies and their products and services to help manage it. Um, but that's not required for contact tracing. You can do contact tracing with pen and paper. Just mm -hmm. ask people to write down their name and email address um, or their phone number. Uh, so I think that the public is not quite there in terms of being ready for a technological solution to contact tracing in the West, the way that we've seen perhaps in South Korea, um, which is a highly technological approach. I, I was actually recently in uh, Vermont and everywhere that we went, there was exactly a uh, pen and paper uh, for writing down your name and information. And, P and I asked around and, and they said, yeah, nobody wants to put it into a computer, but they're very happy to put it on a piece of paper that can be thrown away. So p wow. there's a, a trust issue, I think, that yeah. we need to work on. Um, it's not necessarily one between the citizens and the government necessarily. It's so much between 
citizens and the tech companies. So much for driverless cars. We're getting back to mail-in balloting and pen and paper. Uh, so for our final question, and then we'll just uh, also learn where we can stay in touch with both of you. Uh, a couple of questions from Joel. So I want to bring in uh, one of them. Uh, are you concerned with tech companies' unwillingness to collaborate with domestic intelligence, national security? And then to build upon what, what Joel is asking, specifically, uh, what I was thinking about when he asked that question was uh, Apple. Uh, there's always been a lot of issues with countries like the United States with Apple uh, asking for, quote unquote, backdoor access to a lot of this information, especially when, when trying to track uh, somebody down. Uh, that's been a hot topic with Tim Cook at Apple of basically saying, uh, you know, what's what's his allegiance? Is it with Apple or is it as a as an American? So, uh, Ron, do you have any thoughts on that about uh, there's always this tension, right? Uh, you, you've got the countries that are saying, hey, we need this. We need to track down. Uh, terrorists. We need we need this for national security. We need to 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 have this backdoor access. But then, uh, users of these technology, they're saying, "Well, wait a minute. I want to I want to make sure that this technology is secure." So they might push back uh, if a tech company like Apple uh, does does release a backdoor to to a country. Yeah, I I, I think that we got to be very careful with that con that 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 discussion because I think that we first of all there is a lot that is already being done in the security space that you know, may or may not be on the radar of, of, of individuals and conversations. And, you know, and I don't pretend to, to know all of the, the great details of, uh, of, of what that is, but uh, there are, uh, so there has been you know, historically a significant amount of cooperation when it came to things like terrorism and uh, it came to you know, national security related um, uh, concerns with the with the tech companies, and I think that the tech companies have actually developed, um, and this is where they're probably the best, quite frankly, in terms of their capacity to deal with governments because mm -hmm. they've been do, doing it with, for a considerable period of time. Um, there are obvious safeguards within that. There's there are legal safeguards. Um, there's a juridical framework which is you know fairly well established in this context. Um, uh, and the political context of this, I think, is um, potentially going to change with geopolitics. And uh, right now, we live in a world where uh, liberal international order, trade rules, these sorts of governing principles uh, have operated with, you know, as, as the background radiation of our thinking on these mm -hmm. topics. Um, if, for instance, and I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if we were to move into a world where um, uh, security was a much more binary um, discussion, or that uh, uh, the security environment required was a, a much stronger integration of uh, you know tech capabilities in the state. Then I think companies would you know uh, their positions would change accordingly during mm -hmm. uh, along that, those lines. But I think that the public is not quite there yet. Like I think that you know there was a lot of support for Tim Cook when um, he took the positions that he did um, during that period, and uh, and so that that other sort of hole in the midst of this is uh, public sentiment, and okay. um, you know the tech companies themselves are extremely you know sort of concerned about public sentiment, of course, and uh, and and governments themselves don't want to go up against public sentiment on these issues. So this is a kind of a tripartite dance that's going to continue for a while. Sure. Uh, 
I see that we're we're nearing our, our time together. So again, I, I want to thank both of you. But before we uh, head ahead uh, ado, uh, I want to thank everybody for for tuning in with their, their great questions. But we also want to learn a little bit more, uh, any final thoughts that both you have, and then also where people can continue this conversation. 45 minutes is not enough. Uh, on big tech power and diplomacy, especially how hot this is. So one, uh, recommend uh, reading the information trade, uh, Alexis's book, uh, learning more about this, staying in touch with us at alltechishuman.org and also our partner, uh, The Bridge at thebridgework.com. But Alexis, any, any final thoughts and then also where people can, can stay in touch with you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I just thank you so much for hosting this conversation. It's been so fun and um, I've learned so much from, from both of you. And I just want to say that Ultimately, I am optimistic. Um, one of the things I think when you write about technology, it's very easy to go down a rabbit hole of doom and gloom. And I don't feel that way, actually. And I think the book reflects that. There's a shifting order. There are new norms. Mm -hmm. There are new relationships and dynamics. But that doesn't mean they're all bad. And doesn't mean it's all going to mean our, our ruin. I think that there's a lot that we can do if we organize ourselves into um, a voice that can speak up for citizens' rights. And so I just want to leave with that note. Uh, I feel hopeful about the future. That is very hopeful. And we, we need that right around uh, right around now. And then where can people uh, stay in touch with you? Do you, do you prefer yeah. Twitter or is there, is there well, somewhere I'm Twitter, ideal? I'm on Twitter at A. Wachowski. And uh, I'm just also at awachowski at gmail.com. Terrific. Alexis, uh, thank you for, for joining us. So Rana, uh, what about yourself? Any any closing thoughts that you might have and also where people can can stay in touch with you? Yeah, I, 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 I like uh, Alexis, I'm, you know, a uh, an optimist, um, uh, not necessarily a tech optimist, but I'm an optimist to go where, where <laughs> uh, society is going in this context, because I think that, you know, the one of the most interesting sort of elements of this last couple of years that I really found was that in the naming of the mechanism of what is taking place, you know, this idea of not just, you know, surveillance economics or attention economics or, you know, the mechanisms that companies are actually using to, um, uh, to you know, to, to work with us is uh, in just doing that, we've uncovered a lot about, you know, what we want from both organizations, what we want from our societies. And so this idea of pro-human technology is something which has gathered pace and in the context of everything from COVID to all of the disruptions that we're taking that are, that are out there right now, I think that we're, we're in a moment where um, uh, I think we can be optimistic about um, all of these new learnings that are taking place. And so just to reach me, I'm Rana Sarkar underscore at, on Twitter. Thanks so much to David Ryan Polgar and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Alexis and Rana's expertise on the subject. The live stream may be over, but there are many ways that each of us can take action. So now is the time to debrief Dylan and I's biggest takeaways from the live stream, including specific actions that all of you listeners can take and resources to continue the conversation. So the action items that we have from the conversation for everyone today start with recognizing that our relationship with governments is changing. Next, ask yourself if you might be looking up to tech companies right now to provide any safety or security that you might be lacking from your government. Also ask yourself if you had to choose between privacy and security, what would you choose? Why? 
the action items that the experts laid out for policymakers included an invitation to build cross-literacy between your government and other governments, to be able to work on coordination efforts to make communication easier across governments and also across multi-stakeholders and different entities, to encourage more conversation and communication between large tech corporations and government bodies, and to invite stakeholders from large tech companies or multilateral organizations to be at the table for important conversations. And finally, if you do work for a multinational or global tech organization, here are some action items for you. First, recognize that you might have to pick sides between sovereign states that your technologies interact with and within. Admit the allegiance that you likely owe to the nation that your organization is based in and recognize what relations your nation has with others globally who interact with your technology. And finally, hire diplomats for your organization. Hire ambassadors and specialists who can help your organization with things like treaties, allegiance, and relationships with other nations. And this conversation does not stop here, especially since in this conversation there are so many topics that have so much uh, meat to them that we want to hear from you on your thoughts on these action items uh, on ways that you might be able to engage with them or maybe ways that these action items challenge you or your preconceptions about big tech and diplomacy. So for each of these episodes in our series with All Tech is Human, you can find a detailed Continue the Conversation page on our website, RadicalAI.org. And for each episode, you can find the entire comprehensive list of the action items we just summarized, as well as all of the annotated resources that were mentioned by the guest speakers during the live stream, along with ways to get involved, relevant books, media, and other publications. And if you have ideas for resources to include, we invite you to share them on our Continue the Conversation page as well as a comment. Our goal is to build a space together that helps us raise awareness and take action and suss out these difficult topics. So the conversation does not stop here, and we would love to hear from you. For more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at RadicalAI.org backslash continue dash the dash conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay, stay radical. radical.